This is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform. I am sitting here with Eat to Perform intern coach Sam Sackett and then Eat to Perform coach Catherine Adams. She's actually having a little bit of internet issues, so you guys might not hear her, but she is going to be able to be helpful as it relates to setting up the links in the forums and things of this nature. So if you're listening on the podcast, um, what we are doing here, this is our quick start classes. And basically when you join Eat Reform, one of the options that you get is to be able to um, have kind of more um, intense interaction. And that's what this class is. And we, you know, a lot of the times we'll talk uh, to clients about questions, which we'll do at the end of this. You guys probably won't hear that part because I want to try and keep this podcast relatively short. Um, we don't always have a theme, but this time we are going to have a theme. And uh, the theme that we're going to go with is the lies that the fitness industry tells you to keep you confused. And like any lie, if there's a small smidgen of truth, the lie is better, right? And so uh, I think Sam and I are going to dissect it a little bit, and then uh, we'll, we'll get to questions from the class after that. So this might be 15 minutes. It might be 30. I, I doubt it'll go longer than 30. So the big one that I always see is something that is acute to me today because my abs, um, my abs aren't sore yet, but they're definitely going to be sore tomorrow because one of the challenges that we're doing in, with Eat to Perform, we've been doing daily challenges. It's kind of a, uh, a holdover from my training for War of the Wads where I was trying to get in a lot of volume, and but I had, you know, a kind of a hectic work schedule because it was right around the first of the year. So I was trying to figure out ways to kind of get in volume and, and this is what I came up with. Well, once um, that event was over, I was like, man, I really was digging that, you know? And so like I jumped into it right off the bat and we have roughly, I'd say, you know, about 60 to 70 people join us most days. Um, today wasn't, today's wasn't too popular. It was um, dragon flags and uh, um, followed by sit-ups. And so basically you would just do like, you know, two to three dragon flags just to kind of activate the muscle. And then you would do 25 sit-ups every, every hour on the hour. So mine started at 6 and then just ended at roughly 6 p.m. Um, I did actually have to drop down to just doing the negatives towards the middle of the day and uh, once uh, I don't know it was weird because I, I thought I might have to stay doing just the negatives but uh, I'd say around like two o'clock I was able to go back into the cycle of doing the whole dragon flag um, so it, it's also saying that my internet might be bad I think that that might affect the webinar more than it would affect the recording. So the first lie, you know, and once again, you know, is there some truth in, in it? We'll talk about that. But the first lie is that abs are not made or abs are made in the kitchen, right? And abs are not made in the kitchen. Abs are made in the weight room. And abs are made through hard work and food. And what ultimately the, you know, six-pack shortcut guy is trying to sell you, you know, and all these other guys, you know, they're trying to tell you that they have the secret. And that their little secret that they could sell you for $39.95 is going to make all the difference in the world. And then voila... You can be rocking a Speedo like a champ. Well, the problem with rocking a Speedo like a champ is it does take hard work. And it takes years of kind of building that. I know for myself, as someone who is pretty intelligent as it relates to training, um, my abs still, you know, I have pretty good ab development. 
but you know my lower abs could probably use a little bit more work than my upper abs you know um, I think that when we talk about you know squat training um, you know and, and I'll talk to Sam a little bit about it because I think that you know what he will give you is a little bit more of the clear picture but if you're not doing you know hypertrophy work on your lower abs you are missing a little bit of an opportunity now does that does that mean that you know if for instance you're doing something like crossfit um that you can't take off your shirt and feel pretty good at on the beach you know no you're probably fine you know and if you're a high level athlete you probably have abs and you're probably doing great but there really is what abs you know that abs aren't made in the kitchen or the abs are made in the kitchen what they're saying is is basically you can starve yourself to abs and when you do that there's a point of diminishing returns one of the things that I hear from a lot of natural bodybuilders um, and it's sort of interesting because I think that you know there's sort of two factions and Sam knows a little bit more about that than I do but you know I, I have my my hand in that world as well what ends up happening is a lot of these guys end up being like professional dieters, right? And it sort of misses the whole point of bodybuilding. And when you see someone that does it really well, especially a natural bodybuilder, a lot of the times they took years and years and years before they cut for a show. And then all of a sudden you start to see these guys that are like, you know, doing three, four shows a year and things of this nature. And they're sort of missing out on the top end of the bodybuilding part. I mean, I don't really want to get into performance enhancing drugs and stuff like that because I don't think that that's a huge issue. But I think if you looked at it and you went, man, why is the temptation for that? Right. Well, the temptation is because, you know, if you're constantly thinking that the secret is eating less you're sort of missing out on a little bit of the magic and i'll tell you something that 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 i think about bodybuilders that i don't think the majority of people know like for instance do you know i mean do you have any idea how much phil heath eats i mean this seems like something you might know like on a daily basis phil heath me yeah uh, I, would, I would guess, <laughs> I would guess like 7,000 calories yes. probably. That's what I was yeah. going to say. Like oh. mo most of these guys, now once again, people will focus on the performance enhancing part. You know, that's not the discussion we're having. What we're dis the discussion we're having is recovery and how you get, you know, muscle to grow on your body. And that requires a lot of work. And a lot of food and you will not often see you know like if you look at the physiques of bodybuilders from 30 years ago compared to bodybuilders today obviously bodybuilders today are much better with PEDs um, but they're also um, more the physiques are more bombastic you know, um, I think that a lot of people look back at, you know, 30, 50 years ago and, and the magazines with bodybuilders and go, you know, wow, that that's a really good look because that is obtainable. A lot of those guys, you know, kind of look like some of the really good natural bodybuilders of this mm -hmm. day. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And but but make no mistake about it bodybuilders tend to be like natural bodybuilders tend to be a lot smarter about how they eat than almost any other sport that I've ever encountered because mm -hmm. you know if for instance you're a crossfitter what ends up happening is you can sort of rely on your athletic ability you know I've talked about this I don't want to go into it ad nauseum but you would be shocked at how little information NFL players have, how little information high-level college you know people have, and uh, but bodybuilders 
tend to have a good understanding. Unfortunately, I think the dieting thing, you know, um, it, it's sort of like one of these things where, you know, if you have kind of a mindset, um, you're attracted to this one thing. And so I think that that's why a lot of cr chronic dieters are, are, you know, kind of, you know, are interested in that. Do you have any thoughts on on what I'm saying in general and 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 my my general idea that 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 abs are made in the gym? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole abs are made in the kitchen. Uh, it's it sounds good, but if you never train your abs, like you said directly, if you don't do some kind of crunches or whatever kind of ab routine you do, if you just eat less food and you never actually train your abs, they're not going to be as built up as they could be. Um, you know, you're just going to look like a skinny, like you're just going to, you'd see ribs more than you'd actually see abdominal muscles. And if your goal is to actually, you know, have a six pack or have well-developed abs, you need to train them. You need to train them heavy. You need to train them like any other muscle. And I think a lot of people, especially when they have the abs are made in the kitchen, they don't end up doing, you know, strange routines, routines for abs. And it's just, I think that's a big misconception that you could always train your abdominal muscles like you would train any other muscle on your body. Yeah, I mean, abs are not that big. I mean, like, you know, going through the workout that we're doing today as part of the challenge, um, you know, you start to realize that your glutes can, your glutes and quads can take a hammering that your abs cannot. And so mm -hmm. you have to be really careful when you're talking about volume and, um, you know, now is, are we saying that you would not occasionally eat at a deficit, right? To, uh, you know, mobilize some stored bodily fat. Of course you would. We're actually going to talk about that in the third one, right? Um, I said, I put two, if you're not watching the video, I put two up, but I meant third one. So the second one that I wanted to talk about is and this is very popular in the paleo world that insulin is a storage hormone and one of the best things that i've ever heard was it described that insulin is not actually a storage hormone insulin is a building hormone and so insulin is you know, a hormone that your body uses to create new tissue now, sometimes that's adipose tissue, and sometimes it's lean muscle mass, right? But the problem with thinking of insulin as a storage hormone is that it panics you, and you start making irrational decisions that's not based on a lot of fact, which, once again, that's a lie that the fitness industry is telling you to try and confuse you into buying the 30-day paleo solution or whatever low-carb type thing that, you know, we're not making an argument that you shouldn't have a moderate approach to carbohydrates and that you shouldn't listen to your body and you shouldn't adjust your caloric ranges as it relates to your, you know, output, trying to find some level of calorie balance. But what we are saying, though, is that if you view insulin as this net negative all the time, what you're ultimately doing is compromising how you're going to retain lean tissue over, you know, th you know, as you go. And when we're when we look at people that come in to eat and form, and they first start off, a lot of times we'll suggest to those people that they should body fat test, and then if they say that they come from a low carbohydrate, you know, background, we get kind of giddy, right? Because we know that those people are going to be, the, we're going to see the easiest results, the quickest, because I've seen, we had a 72 year old woman within six weeks, put on six pounds of muscle. Trust me, eat the reforms good. We ain't that good. Her approach was just awful. And you know, when you see that, you know, insulin can actually be used as a positive 
And when we talk about weight loss, we're really not talking about weight loss, right? I mean, most people don't care all that much about what their weight is. They want to look good naked. And when it's all said and done, you know, they want to have less fat and more lean tissue. Well, you're going to have to show me that formula on how you're going to magically do that without insulin being involved in that process. Once again, the red herring that, you know, most of the arguments that you'll see on the other side is, you know, that, uh, you know, insulin spikes and all this other kind of stuff that really kind of scares you into buying whatever it is they're selling or following whatever it is, their, the message or movement that they're trying to do. The Before we talk to Sam about it, the other thing that I think is, is sort of important is is what blunts insulin, right? So when we talk about having a high fibrous diet, once again, moderate fiber, absolutely, go for it. Really smart, in fact. But when you get to the incredibly high fibrous range, essentially you're using that as something that will blunt insulin and blunt hunger signaling. You don't want to be doing that the good majority of the time because when we're talking about muscle, we're really talking about metabolism. And so a lot of people that are buying like metabolism, you know, pills and drinks and all this other type of stuff, you know, you'd be much better off taking a moderate approach, having some level of resistance training, allowing for some type of volume, you know, we, we talked about it last week with cardio, where if you have some kind of you know, cardiovascular training that allows your heart to be healthy, that's going to be a positive, right? Any thoughts on the idea of insulin as a storage hormone or anecdotes that you can sort of think of? Um, well, my two cents with insulin is people are focusing on insulin or any kind of hormone, and it's not something I think that you should implement or should worry about even. Um, you know, insulin, when you eat something, you know, people think, you know, certain carbohydrates are going to have insulin spike. Can I, can I interrupt? Can I interrupt yeah. you for just a second? If yeah. you're a type di type one diabetic, absolutely. If you're a type oh, yeah. two diabetic, we're not giving you medical advice. Okay. Yeah. We're just telling you that if you don't have a doctor's reason to be concerned about insulin, you're probably worried about things too much. Okay, so I had to throw out that little caveat because there's a lot of people that are listening to this that are that are like, "But I'm a type one diabetic," you know, and all of a sudden they're they're like nonstop, you know, Captain Crunch. You know, it's like, no, don't do that. Yeah, definitely a good one there, Paul. That was good. Um, but a lot of people, I think, uh, first off, is you know they don't they think you know only carbohydrates are going to spike insulin. And uh, um, an example is, you know, something like a whey protein shake is going to have a higher effect on your insulin levels than white bread, for example. So I think a lot of people that think that they're trying to manipulate uh, their insulin levels and they think that they're low all the time, they'd be quite surprised um, if they actually check them how high they would actually be. And I think that, you know, anytime you eat, you know, insulin, it's, you know, you go, if I have this amount of carbohydrates, my insulin is going to raise, I'm not going to be burning fat, I'm going to be storing fat. Well, anytime you eat, your body should not be having to burn fat. It's, it, you're eating food. There's no reason for your body to be burning fat. So I think worrying about, you know, your insulin levels, um, like you said, having fiber in your food, you know, and trying to eat from whole foods is always a good choice just for satiety and everything like that. But I think trying to manipulate insulin levels is, is missing the forest for the trees, I guess, because um, you, you can't, you're not going to be able to manipulate something that anytime you eat is, is always going to be raised no matter what. So I think that's a big, like you said, a big problem in trying to sell something or trying to confuse people and scaring them to having only, you know, this food or, or, or buy this supplement to keep your insulin levels low. I think that's a big, big mistake. Well, and, and once again, it kind of goes back to the, the, the first message. And actually, I did think of a fourth lie. Um, the, uh, when we were talking about the abs are made in, you know, um, are made in the kitchen, 
what that is saying is that you should be in a deficit the good majority of the time and that's not how you obviously um, make lean tissue things of this nature it's a similar idea with you know insulin as storage except except the exact opposite and um, which brings me to kind of the next thing now you know we can sort of go back and forth on this I don't I don't really think that this is a huge issue but I think understanding this concept is a game changer for a lot of people. A lot of people will hear things related to the GI index. And basically the GI index is how your body responds to food in a fasted state. And so, and, and it would be that singular food without other food. So you go, okay, well that's useful information. Really? How useful is it? Because how often do you eat food without other food, right? And so I'm not saying that the GI index isn't useful, but I am kind of saying the GI index isn't useful because what I'm talking about is the lies that people are using the GI index to scare you into buying their product. And what I'm saying is, if you eat white rice and you have some guacamole with that white rice, you just changed everything, right? Because when you're talking about like fast loading carbohydrates, slow loading carbohydrates, and how you can sort of manipulate that a little bit, I would say if you, you know, once again, if you put like a, a, a fraction on it, you know, it'd be in that like 5% range, maybe 10% if you were like, you know, an Olympian, right? And, and you know, you were really trying to kind of optimize things um, at the top end. But I think that when you hear something related to the, the GI index, think of it from the standpoint, like for instance, I mean, the one that everyone uses is a Snickers, right? Like a Snickers has like a great GI index. People are like, I'm just going to jam on some Snickers all the time. It's like, well, yeah, because it's got fat in it from caramel and the nougat and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, do you have any thoughts on the, on the GI index? I know that that's kind of a, a hot button for you. Yeah, um, you pretty much just nailed it. Um, a lot of people get confused on this, this topic and... You, you said it perfectly. You know, the GI index is useful. It can be useful for people who are type 2 diabetics um, and need to keep insulin levels down um, at certain times. So that's uh, um, crossing that off the list. If you don't have a food in a fasted state and it's the only food you have in isolation, the, the GI index is somewhat irrelevant. Is it completely irrelevant? No. You know, like you said, if you want to have some you know, you're not going to be downing, um, you know, oatmeal during a workout. You'd rather have some Gatorade because it would just, it would, um, you know, sit in your stomach. It's not a fast digesting carbohydrate because you're having it in isolation during a workout. But anytime you have a mixed meal, which the majority of time you do, it's going to slow down. It's going to change the GI index of that whole meal. So I think, you know, trying, trying to, have just slow digesting carbohydrates because you think that it won't store fat or any of these kind of myths you may hear or misconceptions. Um, just keep that in mind that anytime you have a mixed meal, the GI index of that food is changed. Dramatically, yeah. And so one of the things you, if you're listening on the podcast, I'm actually pointing to my neck. Um, and I don't know if people can see it very well but I have kind of a discoloration in my neck and it's a residual from when um, it's kind of a precursor to type D, type 2 diabetes and it, it it's a reminder to me of how bad things were at one point right and you know I've pointed to many different things that was kind of a wake-up call for me but that was one of the things. And what's nice is, is that it's still there. It's a daily reminder that, you know, I 
control my own destiny. And, you know, what's been nice is going to my blood work is phenomenal now. Um, I've been able to kind of self-correct a lot of the, the bad health type situations. You know, um, we'll, we'll actually talk about a little bit of that in the next one. Um, but if you're a, a type 2 diabetic even, exercise and being more cognizant of your food choices and your behaviors make a big difference for type 2 diabetics and you you don't need to be as reliant on insulin and I, I you know can you cure yourself you know that that's that's a little going a little too far but can you dramatically affect it to the point where you can diminish it greatly yes and you know is it as easy as just sticking yourself with insulin no it's not you know, it, it's going to take a commitment and it's going to take time to be better. But I think that um, that's something that most type 2 diabetics at least um, should hear or people should be honest. I mean, most of the type 2 diabetics that I know aren't always open to hearing that story. So I'm just putting that out there. But if you are interested in, you know, um, affecting your type 2 diabetes, Definitely behavioral type stuff and exercise make a big difference. Mm -hmm. The other one that I was going to say is, and, and you know, you see the Willy Wonka memes, and you know, the the basic idea is tell me again how you're gonna um, lose fat by eating more. This one drives me crazy because it's got just enough truth in it to where it sounds really, you know, almost ridicules you into under eating. The problem with under eating and the problem not with, and once again, are we saying that you should never eat at a deficit? Absolutely not. We have a great plan for that, but it's much smarter than just trying to ridicule you into doing whatever choice that they want you to have so you buy their book for $19.95 or whatever. When you are dieting too often, it's going to have negative effects from a down regulation standpoint. One of the things that I talked about, not only did I have that, but um, I was hypothyroid to the point where I was receiving medication. I actually took the medication you know, I've talked about it a number of times. I took the medication for about five to seven days. And I started feeling better dramatically fast. And I went to the doctor. I said, here's your medicine. I appreciate it. But I haven't tried exercise and eating an adequate amount for what I do. Because what I did was took his medicine like he told me to do and then I went and I did my own research and I talked my my own um, to to doctors and PhDs and they they said yes you should try to correct it on your own and I did and basically I think like two three years ago he was like don't come back you're fine you know he's like I don't know what you did but you worked it out you know, and I think that, um, you know, when we're talking about chronically dieting, you know, you're basically, you know, going to negatively affect thyroid function. And if you've been, you know, dieting, you know, there are people that, that say to me, well, I'm not dieting. I just, you know, I avoid sugar. I avoid this. I avoid that. I avoid this. You know, it's like, well, you're, you're dieting. You just don't know it, you know? And, uh, I just, I feel like sort of teasing people into doing your plan. I mean, the problem with what that person is saying is that it assumes something that they don't know, right? And the person that sent that out is actually a doctor. Let me tell you something about being a doctor. 
doctors, every doctor I talk to, they got a tough gig. They're trying to deal with a very difficult problem as it relates to health epidemic. The good majority of people that they're seeing, they're reacting to, those people aren't proactive as it relates to their health. What we're suggesting is that people should be a little bit more proactive rather than reactive. So if I'm a doctor, that, that's the formula that I think everybody needs. Because everybody I see is overweight, doesn't, you know, um, regard their health in a, in a proper fashion and often, you know, resorts to the same options that I did, you know, where, you know, well, am I going to have to go on insulin? Am I going to have to take, you know, um, you know, medicine to correct my hypothyroidism? And I think that you could argue that you know, doctors are invested in keeping us unhealthy. I, I don't believe that. I do. I genuinely don't. And and I know that sometimes it looks that way, but I don't think they're in the business of harming people. And I don't think they're in the business of keeping people sick. I think that people are making choices that are keeping them sick. And when you look at, you know, one of the things that I've always said is it's not the marketers, right? All these people that I'm talking about right here, they're marketing, they're trying to deceive you to sell you something. But if you were buying chicken and kale, right, they would sell you that. You know, don't blame the marketers. Blame you, right? I mean, like... For, for almost 10 years, you know, I bought all this nonsense and I believed all this nonsense because it seemed, you know, everybody was saying the same thing and it didn't, you know, really show any tangible results for me. Well, the worst part was is that it did show tangible results, right? I did lose weight and I was able to, um, to see a result, but at the end of the day, I, I could sustain it. You know, um, there was one other thing that I, I wanted to talk about, and it, it's not necessarily related to this, but it but it kind of is. But before we move on to that, Sam, do you have any any thoughts on on what I'm saying in regard in that regard? Because obviously, a little bit of what the Willy Wonka theme, you know, or meme is saying is a little bit of truth, right? I mean, calorie balance is a big part of it. But, you know, staying, you know, lower is ultimately going to negatively affect your metabolism. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the whole eating more to lose, um, to lose weight. I mean, it's, there is some truth to that. Like you said, um, you know, eating more food will, you know, improve your workouts. You'll have more energy. You'll, you know, burn the, the old, you know, you'll have more neat, more non-exercise adaptive, you know, thermogenesis, which just means more activity outside of the gym, um, which then you burn more calories. Will that increased calories outweigh the increased calories that you're eating? You know, I mean, that depends. Um, but um, if you want to feel better and you, like you said, if you want to have effective workouts, you can't be chronically always dieting. Um, it's just not, you know, you said down regulation of hormone levels, you know, leptin comes to mind, um, all these things, you don't want to be in a chronic deficit, you know, your whole life, you'll just feel miserable. Um, well, you'll never, as, you'll never reach your potential. That's, yeah, you know, that's, yeah. yeah. yeah you just feel, you'll just feel, yeah, you just feel miserable all the time. Um, and like you said, with, uh, you know, people on, uh, you know, if they're diabetics type two or overweight with going to doctors, I think a lot of people hate to say, I mean, either they're just somewhat lazy or they just don't want to take control. Um, and then maybe they blame the doctors, but you need to take control of your life if you want to make changes because the doctors are there just to assist you. They're not going to try to make massive changes and be like, I'm not going to give you this medicine. Um, because I want you to work out because that's not their responsibility. You need to take control. You know, if you want to eat healthier, you want to, 
you know, turn your life around if it's to lose weight because you're obese or whatever it is, exercise. Um, you need to make those changes. You can't rely on a doctor to uh, tell you to uh, to stop giving you medicine because they're just there to help assist you with yeah, the direction you Yeah, they're trying to react, you know, yeah. and then, you know, kind of what, what Sam is saying, you know, is sort of what, you know, a lot of us have struggled with, right, where we've had, you know, um, more fat to use and we wanted to figure out a way to do it. One of the things that, that I often say to people is start with moving. And I think you're more likely to find the answer to your long-term issues if you start with moving and then dial your food back. If you just dial your food back, essentially you've killed two birds at the same time and those two birds ultimately equal your metabolism. What you'd be much better to do is start moving, making movement a priority in your life, and then try and do, like one of the concepts that, that I'd heard of, it wasn't a great concept, but it, it, was, it was better than most that I've seen, is eat this, not that. And eat this, not that was basically trying to kind of switch out negative things that you're eating and then eat something a little bit more positive for you, maybe not as energy dense, things of that nature. Well, you know, another myth that uh, that often comes up, I mean, I won't spend a lot of time because we're obviously going long. We're not getting a lot of questions at this point. So uh, people will often say that you, you can't out-train a bad diet. That is not true either. You absolutely can out-train a bad diet. And if you need examples, obviously Michael Phelps is a great example. But Rich Froning um, is sort of known for out-training a bad diet. Now, am I making an argument for out-training a bad diet? No, I'm not. What I'm making an argument for is volume. And volume, work capacity, and adaptation ultimately will land you in a more correct spot than thinking of the less, less, less. And, and the next the next thing we'll go on, I, I really hope people are, are getting this because I think we're, we're hitting on some really good points. I think the next thing, I think, you know, Sam, you and I will be able to relate to this, this next one well. But do you have any thoughts about what I'm saying, like in terms of, uh, you know, because the, the person that, that, that said that, um, that I, is a guy named Alex Vieta, and Alex is kind of this guy... You know, he, he's, he's, he's just, he's like a unicorn, you know I mean? He can, and he's a monster. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, he's, you know, I, I've seen, you know, Alex, you know, down, you know, a bunch of beer and eating chips and guacamole. And I don't think I've ever seen, you know, and I've seen, I've worked with CrossFit games, athletes. I've seen people with really good physiques. I don't think I've ever seen anyone when they took off their shirt. I went like, "Oh damn!" <laughs> you know. Well, actually, I did. There is a, one other person would be um, James Townsend. Um, that you know, he's another mm -hmm. guy. Any any thoughts on the out training uh, that diet? Because I mean, obviously, I'm not saying eat excessively and then try and work out all the time to justify a bunch of bad decisions. Because I would think that both you and I. We probably live in that mortal world, right? Where, you know, we're just trying to eat enough to kind of, you know, increase work capacity, have enough for adaptation, but really not dig too big of a hole. So we have to either work out all the time or then have to be in cut mode nonstop. Yeah, yeah you brought up like, uh, you know, Michael Phelps or Alex Biata or any of these high performance um, athletes. And it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say, it wouldn't be a bad diet for them. But if I was on a diet like Michael Phelps or Alex Biata, it would probably be a bad diet. And I'd be gaining a lot of weight if I switched exactly to what he was eating. Um, it's not a bad diet to Michael Phelps because it's it's what he needs for his goals to perform at the level he's performing at. A bad diet for Michael Phelps instead of the 10,000 calories or whatever he eats would be if he was eating 
in a deficit at 5,000 calories, or maybe if he was eating right. at, I don't know, something insane like 15 or 20,000 calories consistently, maybe that would negatively affect his training and to gain excessive weight or whatever it may be. Um, but whatever the, the diet that somebody's doing, like you said, increasing calories will help increase work capacity. It will help improve your workouts. And uh, it's just a, a balance to, I wouldn't necessarily say good or bad. It's just what is right for you at the time. Um, and trying to increase that over time to have, like I said, better workouts and try to reach the potential that you're looking for. Well, and, you know, and this is not insignificant. When you do want to go and deal with a little bit of fat, you can do so more effectively. The other mm -hmm. way, you're constantly low, you're banging the hammer, you just have to try and bang the hammer harder. And can you do it? You can, but like we talked about, you know, the negative health, you know, I mean, under eating has, you know, a lot of negatives as well. So the last one that I wanted to go over was, and, and I'm sorry, but we've kind of gone long, but these have been great topics. And, and I think that people, well, just judging by the fact that nobody's asking questions, they're, they're liking the topics. So I was talking to a client last night and she messaged me um, in the forums and, uh, you know, we went back and forth a couple times and at one point I just said, Hey, why don't I do this? You know, here's my phone number. Give me a call. So, because I, I, I felt like she was just in kind of a, a really bad place. Um, she was a friend of a friend. And, you know, one, uh, um, the friend had sort of recommended each form and, and now, you know, here's this woman panicking. And so I wanted to make sure that my friend wasn't um, going to be harassed the next day at the gym. And she had lost 70 pounds in about eight months. Now, you know, there was a, there was a child involved and, and lots of different things going on there, right? But in general the approach that she had taken was kind of just like, you know, taking a lot of energy dense foods out of her diet. And um, now she's looking at eat to form to try and kind of normalize the way that she's eating. And I talked to her, you know, and I don't want to get into this because we, you know, we've done a million podcasts, virtually every other podcast we've done, we've talked about this, but when you're coming from a really restricted background from a cellular level, your body's just not going to respond to nutrients. I mean, no matter how much running you do, you know, it's just not ready yet to have an adequate amount of food. Now, it can get there relatively quickly when you're starting to add volume, but a lot of times it takes a while for your body to adjust. And, and you know, if you try and do it too quickly, it'll compromise your immune system. You'll get sick. You'll get injured. Your body's just not ready yet. Oh, one thing that I wanted to say about eating a higher amount of calories. A lot of the times people will say that when you're eating a lot of energy dense foods that, you know, and, and we'll just say ice cream, right? So you're eating ice cream um, fairly often, you have enough training volume, they will say to you, you know, um, well, yeah, but what about your health? Got bad news for you there, too. In terms of micronutrients, you're more likely to hit your vitamin levels when you're eating an adequate amount of food, not eating an inadequate amount of food. That's why you have to supplement with a multivitamin, right? People that end up eating five to 6,000 calories a day, they don't need a multivitamin. They're getting amount of vitamins through all the various, you know, all the variety of foods that, that they're eating. The person that's, that's like, well, yeah, but what about your health? That's a little bit of a misery love company thing, right? I'm miserable. I'm just eating chicken and kale. You should just be eating a chicken and kale. It's like, well, you know, I work out more than you. You know, my volume is higher. Um, I do think, I mean, one of the, one of the best gifts that I gave myself was the ability 
to control my weight when my volume wasn't high. And I feel like if everybody knew that they controlled the switch, they wouldn't feel as vulnerable. And that was important for me to know because all the other times, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about it in the scenario that I'm gonna talk about and then we'll, if we don't have any other questions, we'll, we'll just shut it down. So I'm talking to this woman. She lost 70 pounds. Um, she was, you know, her lowest weight was 140. And then, you know, she was um, concerned that her weight was approaching 150. And I said to her, that's completely normal. And she's like, I understand that it's normal, but I want to be at 140. And I said to her something that I wish I had known, you know, 50, if, if I had known this 15 years, you know, 17 years ago, either form wouldn't exist. You have to allow for some bounce back. You can't just hammer the calories down 70, cal 70, 70 pounds and not allow for some up, right? And I explained to her a situation where, you know, I lost 70 pounds, like the same as her. And I went on vacation. It was a very active vacation. It was similar to the scenario that I just talked about. I was eating very, very low at that time. This was obviously before Eat to Perform. And, but, but one thing that I said to her, that this time that I'm speaking of right now, where, where it was sort of the, the, the second to last time before Eat to Perform, that was the reason why Eat to Perform worked. I figured out my failure point and what I figured out was that if I didn't allow for some buffering, that I was going to constantly be in a bad state mentally. And, you know, we've talked about Minnesota starvation and, and when you have, you know, um, hypocaloric scenarios that mentally you're, uh, your brain chemistry changes the way that you view food and you'll start obsessing about recipes and, and you're, you're more susceptible to things like eating disorders and stuff like that, right? So when I went on this vacation, I told her, I said I came back, 183 pounds, um, was down to 170. I felt like I had failed because I was 13 pounds higher. My body just wasn't ready to deal with eating normally yet. And there was no reason why I shouldn't have been fine being 183, but it just felt, I just felt defeated. And not only did I get back to 215, but ultimately got to 2.30. And that was within months. Um, and what a lot of people don't tell you is that, you know, suicide rates, depression, there's a high correlation in a lot of those scenarios where people are failing based on incorrect parameters in my view, right? What, you know, and I, I'm not really throwing this out there as a lie, but it, but it kind of is, right? The lie is that the more rigid you are, the more of a chance you'll get to stay at 140, you know? Or that, you know, a lot of these weight numbers, and I know you, you lost a significant amount of weight as well. I lost a... They're sort of like made up in your head. You know what I mean? Like you, you look at them as a goal. Like even if you looked at it from a body fat percentage standpoint, you know, when we're talking about down, you get to a point of diminishing return. So it's easy to go, 
well, I only have 18.5 pounds of fat that I want to, you know, rid my body of. That's not how it works. You know, if you continuously dieting without any diet breaks, without a good amount of volume, without a really smart approach, you know, you might lose 18.5 pounds, but, you know, seven, eight pounds of that is muscle, which, by the way, is pretty normal, right? Um, which is one of the reasons why we kind of like people to, to bite it off in chunks. That way, you know, we can sort of control the volume, make sure that they're losing as little muscle as possible, and then ultimately um, not in these binge bust scenarios, you know? What I spoke to this woman about, and, you know, we've had this discussion before where, you know, the idea of kind of dieting yourself to obesity, that's how you do it, right? Because basically when you are at a state of deprivation, there's sort of two ways to go. And it's sort of interesting because, you know, when you look at diabetics, they're insulin resistant, right? And that's what is causing their dysfunction. What a lot of people don't know is that when you are a chronic dieter, you can also become insulin resistant, right? You're not really asking your body to use insulin. This is why when we talked a little bit earlier about insulin, you playing with insulin is, you know, maybe not the best decision because you can develop insulin resistance both ways. And, you know, chronically dieting, you know, blunting, you know, insulin, you know, it's probably not your, your best thing. Um, when we're talking, though, about uh, someone that is low in weight, they will often be more insulin sensitive. And that's a good thing, right? Because one of the values of kind of cleaning the pipes every now and again, where you're doing like a short cutting period, um, is that it is actually um, somewhat good for your body. Um, your body uh, learns to use nutrients more efficiently, and that's a positive. One of the positives that is that it makes you more insulin sensitive. Insulin resistance is bad. Insulin sensitivity is good. But so does exercise. Exercise also is good for insulin sensitivity. And so part of the argument that some people will make is, is that you don't really need you know, so much of a deficit as long as you're um, you know, got enough volume in your exercise. That tends to be how I sort of approach my health, right? Where I like to have enough volume, where I can keep my um, caloric needs relatively high, eating mostly whole foods, and then occasionally, like when I was obese, you know, the, the issue wasn't, I mean, first of all, like my life is just fundamentally different now. You know, I sleep, you know, I used to not sleep. Um, uh, when I felt bad, I ate. When I felt good, I ate. When um, it was, a, you know, I, I was always eating. You know, everything that I did was based around eating. And, you know, you could easily look at it and go, well, you were a food addict. Let me just address like the food addict thing. If you can, try not to make yourself I don't want to use the word victim because I think that that's a little harsh of a word when we're talking about potential addiction there are people with food addictions and so you should seek medical help if you think you have a food addiction but if you if you if you have if you think you have a food addiction the 1995 detox you know from you know one of the means that's trying to shame you into detoxing probably isn't the best way to go you're probably better off talking to a physician and a specialist that would be able to help you with that but if you look at the way that my thinking goes if you have the chance 
to try and control things through exercise and behaviors, you're likely you're more likely to find the long-term answer rather than um, kind of you know addiction is like something you know and I'm somebody that's been sober for almost thirty years so you know I think I could speak fairly you know I'm kind of an expert on this topic but addiction the idea is that it happens to you right that you almost have no choice at all. I would argue that you should try to have a choice first, right? Rather than opting for, oh, you know, whenever I'm around an Oreo, I just can't put it down. One of the most magical things about Eat to Perform, and, and this was something that we, you know, just kind of happened. There's probably 10 things that just happened that I wouldn't have thought of. Like, I would have never thought that women have thinning hair because they often under eat and so they'll seek out you know um, hair replacement and then those same women say wow once they start eating an adequate amount of food their hair starts to come back I never thought that the other thing that I never knew was that when well I was always making the argument that the people that thought they were sugar addicted were actually energy addicted and because they weren't eating an adequate amount of food for what they did, they were offing in these binge cycles, similar to what we were talking about with like the people that regain weight and sort of diet their way to obesity. But what Eat to Perform members talk about nonstop, like it shocks the hell out of them, is that they can eat a cookie and now put it down, right? You know, they, they don't end up eating like 78,000 cookies, you know, because when you're eating an adequate amount of, of, of food for what you do, you're not craving energy in that way. I will say that there is one caveat. You know those little sweethearts that come out around Valentine's? Those things are addictive. <laughs> I mean, once I start eating those things, man, I can't put them down. You know, so I'm just telling you, just just be careful with those. But you know, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I love those things, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, they're probably like, you know, I, I, I doubt they're, they're going to notice like a, a huge bump down. But and oh, by the way, those are very high in GI index. Because, right. You don't, you don't tend to eat. The, you don't tend to eat those as a mixed meal. Um it, I mean, obviously, I, I covered a lot of ground there. I mean, any thoughts on on that whole idea? Uh, yeah, that's a lot of points. Um, one thing I will say about chronic dieting, uh, I'm not generally a fan of, I mean, we've obviously, obviously been over this, uh, but chronically in an energy deficit, I'm not a fan as far as like hormone levels go. They drop significantly depending on how big your deficit is. Uh, so what I usually like to generally tell people is, you know, if you're, if you're dieting down, you know, if you're obese, you're trying to lose some body fat, um, and you know, your, your training volume is high. Um, I usually like having somewhat of a break, uh, within your, in your dieting phase, um, like a, you know, a two week diet break or something like that, just to increase calories again, to try to, in, um, upregulate those hormone levels can do a lot of, I'm not gonna say magic, but can really help you, um, psychologically instead of looking and breaking down you know, phases of, of your diving phase, for example, instead of thinking like, you know, I have a hundred pounds to lose or, or whatever it may be. Instead of thinking like I have to do this for a year straight, you know, break it into, you know, six or eight week blocks and you go, Hey, and after this, you know, I can relax for a little bit, increase my calories and I'll feel better then I get back on the horse. again. um, I, th I found that to be very beneficial actually for a lot of people. Um, like I said, for just your mindset, I will throw out a caveat, and I think that there are, you know, I'm not saying that the Sam's scenario couldn't work, but here's one problem that happens with the two-week diet break is often it lends itself to bad behavior, right? And so if you're under eating, right, and, you know, can you gain a fair amount of, of weight in two weeks, you know, 
Because what are you going to do, right? You're not going to sort of normalize. In my view, I'd rather see, and this is sort of how we coach it, you know, in group coaching and stuff like that. The the diet breaks tend to be a little longer. They tend to be um, two to three months where we sort of re reverse you out of it sort of slowly. It sort of depends on how you are as an athlete. But what we want you to do is not like just go, oh my God, I haven't had cheesecake and I, you know, I mean, we've all done it, right? So I'm not the only one here. Maybe I am, but I, I don't think I am. But when you're dieting, right, you have that list of foods that you're definitely going to eat on January 1st, you know, once you are done with that dieting cycle. With Eat to Perform, you really don't need that kind of thing because you're not necessarily looking at super restriction. So normally you can fit some things that you like, but also... If you're looking at a more extreme approach to dieting, I mean, one thing I did like about what Sam said that I think everyone should hear, if you've got something going, right? You know, in my, my situation, you know, I was 230 pounds. As I was losing weight, let's say I lost 20 pounds and um, things were still kind of going it probably wouldn't have made a ton of sense for me to stop at that point, right? I mean, just lose the weight and, you know, once you start to stall, that's a sign that it's probably time to start upregulating a little bit. But, you know, if you have a fair amount of fat to use, you definitely want to kind of keep, you know, kind of go with the stream, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so keep that in mind. But, I, you know, I, I hear Sam on the two weeks. That's something that, 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 you know, it's of, you know, debate. I think the problem that you run into is you don't get enough upregulation. I mean, we could do another, you know, half hour on, on why I believe cheat meals are a bad idea. Um, but, um, and it just basically comes down to, I think it sets up a negative relationship with food. And you could actually come up with a, a better plan that allows for a more flexible way of eating. Um, I agree with that, Paul. Yeah. The cheat meal. Yeah. I mean, I could you do the two-week um, um, diet break thing? Absolutely. Right? Like, you know, like I said, with all these things that we're talking about, there's an element of truth with all of it. Like, what, what Sam and I are talking about is a different way that you would use strategy and i could i could think of scenarios right now where i would use sam's scenario and i would imagine the same would also be opposite um from it's sam. definitely not a blanket statement i'm not saying everybody should do a yeah, yeah. diet break or anything like that it, like some people like you said need to go can go straight through it and they're fine if they go off at all they'll end up binging and then they'll just ruin the whole thing so it's definitely a case-by-case -case basis and it's definitely there are no blanket statements in dieting or, or gaining weight or anything like that you have to deal with the individual and deal with the scenarios that come up yeah because i think one of the things that that we'll often have a conversation with people about is they will uh they will get caught up in you know kind of the positivity of eating normal and it's not, you know, no one, no one wants to diet. No one wants to change their eating habits. No, you know, they would like to kind of, you know, have some level of convenience and things of that nature. I think we, you know, a little bit of what we talked about, you know, I, I wouldn't have said, I, I don't think I would have said lazy, but I think that, you know, people do tend to opt for convenience and sometimes just going to a doctor for a prescription is a little bit more convenient than meal planning, than, you know, exercising more regularly. But when we're when we're talking about um, kind of these ideas where you get comfortable with body image and you get comfortable with working out and things of this nature, sometimes people do lose the eyes on the prize. And I think that you know, like in Sam's scenario where where he was saying somebody might have a hundred pounds of fat to use. And let's say they lose 40 pounds and they take a three-month diet break. 
Well, after three months, let's get back up on that horse because even though I think that some of the health things can be a little overblown at times and you'd probably be better off um, thinking of things from the standpoint of thriving, there are some people, myself included, right? I, I've used at least two examples where health was a very real concern and so I had to lose weight for those legitimate health concerns. And so I like people to keep their eyes on the prize in that scenario. And even though they're feeling better about themselves and they're working out and they're much better than they were when they had 40 pounds, there's still, you know, some path to go. And, you know, we can talk about time frame there, but I still like them to kind of keep their eyes on the prize and look towards results. So, well, the 30-minute podcast that we were going to do turned into an hour and eight minutes. So I hope everybody stayed with us. I think we covered a lot of ground on this. Yep. And uh, I think it was overall very, very good and, and nice to have this kind of back and forth with Sam. The thing that's you know funny about it is, is that when you're doing this type of stuff alone, because I do some of these alone, it's a little hard because, you know, you, you sort of want to be able to bounce. You can sort of see like my mind working and then I come back to an idea. If you're all alone, a lot of times you'll stumble over it and you're like, oh, man, what was I thinking about there? You know, and you don't have anything to bounce off of. So, mm-hmm. well, I appreciate you being here, um, Catherine. You know, basically the thread is just going to have, you know, the the podcast but we'll get that up as soon as possible so i appreciate everybody Sounds being all right i appreciate everybody being here and we'll talk to you guys later all right bye